2: and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone.
1: Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. We've had uncertain times recently between the COVID virus and Everything that's been going on in our society has been very difficult to witness firsthand. Uh, The George Floyd situation has really impacted and affected so many of us on a daily basis. With these issues coming to the forefront again, the question becomes, what's the next step? How do we approach this situation so that it can finally end, so that people aren't constantly having to take to the streets to just get the attention of our leaders? our media, and law enforcement. One of the things we're doing with this show is we're going to incorporate social justice reform programming on the show. And I think the reason it's so pivotal and important to do so is to raise awareness of these issues, have a dialogue, and hopefully to alleviate some concerns of our citizens. We are living in unique times. I believe very strongly that the movements that we're looking at right now, Black Lives Matter movement, and everything that's taking place at this moment, the, the progress that we're being seen with NASCAR and the NFL, all these things are gonna eventually come to a crux. And I think a lot of this is gonna be important to understand these issues. Today, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Ginger Charles on the show to talk about this important topic. Dr. Charles is actually a retired police officer herself, and I'm excited to have her on the show because she has the unique perspective of being able to discuss her own understanding of these issues. Her book is called Police Pursuit of the Common Good, Reforming and Restoring the Police Community. In her book, Dr. Charles examines the current issues facing law enforcement and marginalized communities like the black community, She presents reasons why our police communities appear to be in constant conflict with the communities it polices for the last several years. In the book, Dr. Charles explores behaviors in police culture from a social psychological perspective, illustrating the importance of understanding police behaviors in order to change the culture of conflict. It's her experience as a police officer that provides the reader with a unique understanding from inside the police community as an observer of that community. Dr. Charles concludes with potential solutions to reform and restoring police culture to where it should be, as well as healing the divide between our communities and the police. Further background on Dr. Charles, she worked as a police officer in Colorado before retiring in 2013. She has three decades of, went on to receive her PhD in health psychology from Statebrook University in 2005 while working as a police sergeant. Her profession of policing and dedication of service led her to explore how to help police officers build resilience and inner strength. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Charles to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Charles.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: I appreciate it. I, I know that we are living in some unique times. I have actually, in just full disclosure, I went to two protests last week in Tampa, first time in my life. I went to one because I stumbled on it while going to the store, parked the car, and went to it. And I got invited by a college friend of mine to go to the other one. And when I went to the second protest, both were very peaceful, by the way. And one was in downtown Tampa. And I'm just giving you this in the context of our discussion today, that by going to the second protest, there was no police around. We marched about three miles or so around downtown Tampa and wound up in what's called the Curtis Hickson Park. And then I had an opportunity of meeting the organizers of this particular event, and I learned that. there's allegations that Tampa Police Department has been targeting the actual organizers of these protests and arresting them. And that shocked me, because I was thinking, if they're peaceful, that should be protected by our constitutional rights, as long as we're not, you know, doing anything to cause harm or damage to others. And what shocked me most about it was this person who I'm talking about, he actually got arrested after that. And the mayor of Tampa, uh, Jane Castor, she comes from a unique perspective, because she's also our Police chief of many years, and now she's the mayor. She's called for those charges to be dropped. The name of the individual is Imadi Apusa. He's a 22 year old USF graduate. I happened to become acquainted with him at the protest. And when I learned that he got arrested afterwards and charged with inciting a riot, which is a felony under Florida law, it, it, right. it, it just rips at the core of what we are as a society. It's just all these other developments that have been going on that you just turn on the news every day and you look at, at these different things that happened, like what happened in Buffalo and the police unions taking the defense of those officers. These are the things in context that I think we, the dialogue is just so pivotal and important. And I guess so my first question to you in the context of what I just shared is, what do you think from your perspective as you witness these events unfolding right now, what do you think it's going to take to bring us to the table and finally have the discussions that are needed to reform the situation and reduce conflict between police and their their surrounding communities.
0: You you know, fortunately or unfortunately for the, the latest three uh, Ahmad, Arbery, I think, and then uh, George Floyd and then Breonna Taylor, those three events, when we saw those, we actually saw the very beginning to the very end of the, the, the conflict with police or with the um, the two that were acting like police with uh, Ahmad. And so the, the people get to see the entire event in contrast, if you look at Eric Garner, who was, uh, who was the first one to say, I can't breathe and was uh, choked um, and his death was uh, created by the New York police officers. We only saw that particular snapshot. We did not see the whole video. And so there was, there were always, there will always be people who will question that, but that's not the case now. So now we're at the tipping point, where these three individuals have uh, died because of, of some kind of police action, and uh, so actually you start to see more than uh, folks from marginalized communities or from uh, people of color looking at these and saying, this is enough, you're now starting to see other people say, no, this is enough now. So that's the beginning. The second part of it is um, I cannot tell you that this will, I really just see some unrest for a while. Uh, I don't know how long, I just, I'm just, I'm just thinking that whether, uh, well, certainly out here, we've had two, two uh, deputies shot. By um, one was a transient, and another one was actually an uh. elite military man. And so I can't tell you that it would be necessarily police on somebody else, or if it is protesters uh, who are angry, who are maybe not associated with the peaceful protests that are taking action against police officers. Because it's such a volatile situation, it doesn't have to be that way. Um what we what we have to do is we just have to get into these areas that we're working on, such as Minneapolis, and have these conversations between community and police about what are we going to do next? How does this change? Where are we going to go from here? I think it's very important that it not die out like it has before or we'll be doing this again. And my feeling
1: is mm. it would be even more violent. I agree with you 100%, 100%. I think that's probably what we're looking at from a different paradigm shifts on my show. And I feel like what's happened in the last couple of weeks is that our society is going, our world is going through a global paradigm shift. And I'm hoping that things level out eventually where we can get justice and reform that's necessary in our system and finally start addressing these kinds of situations. In your book, you talk about the history of law enforcement within the prism of understanding and trying to, I guess, try to look at the perspective of what the culture is like in our, in, in our system of law enforcement. And one of the things I, I found interesting about that was when you look at the history of it, we have the law enforcement goals to policing, which is the prevention of crime and disorder and the preservation of peace and the protection of life, property, and personal liberty. But we also have the individuals who are involved in policing who have their own struggles because of cultural issues within their training and within their actual, you know, look at, look for, look out for each other, those kind of things that I, I I would want you to kind of hit on that a little bit. And just to provide our audience with the perspective that when they, let's say someone sees a police officer and they are at a demonstration, can you kind of provide a little insight of what the culture is like from a historical point of view and how, you know, we have many But the culture itself, can you kind of highlight that a little bit based on what you you brought about in your book to indicate the importance of understanding culture in in terms of approaching this issue? Sure. Uh,
0: Well, I would say that, you know, we have probably somewhere between 900,000 or less police officers, law enforcement officers, sheriff's deputies. That uh, currently serve in the United States, so that's quite a few out there. And then we see some pretty horrific examples of just a small slice, but that small slice has a huge effect on the entire culture. And so when you look at law enforcement and how it was created, and you go back to slavery and you see that you know now slavery abolished, and so now you have these individuals, people of color that are free, and so you see that the political nature uh, started using law enforcement in order to criminalize uh, these folks because they were no longer slaves. So that's the culture that came uh, with all of law enforcement in the United States. By way of an example, I was talking with my research partner in the UK, and they were having peaceful protests for the most part in the UK. One of the differences there, and you'd mentioned it just briefly, was there was no police presence. So people protested racism and, and how it needs to end and, and changes that need to occur and police stayed out of it. Now, that's a different country and a different issue as far as racism. It is not as pronounced in their law enforcement as it is in ours. So we have it so ingrained in our law enforcement. That's where we have to do this paradigm shift within our own culture. The second thing uh, with police is that it's a very secret culture. It's always been that way. Um, I know that when I first started to do my research, I had I had people that would refuse to do it until they saw that I, w- I was coming from a government ID and then they would felt like they could talk to me. so so those are some of the issues too. And then um, when we look at a social psychological perspectives, when we group together, and it's dysfunctional, and we look at us versus them, or we look at uh, stereotyping, which all of us do, and then we start to attach what people look like to behavior, and then we shorten that to what people look like. You know, that's where we start to go off script there, and that's happened through the centuries of policing here. So, all of this creates this very dysfunctional culture that's very secret, that they don't want anybody in there. And then you have these uh, great police officers that are doing good work that are silenced or they're ostracized. Um, I know I've experienced some of that within my own career as well, Um, certainly willing to be ostracized because there's there's a moral duty and an ethical duty. And that's just the way it is. So it's so interesting that you have, again, 900,000 law enforcement officers. And there's this very small slice that is having such a dramatic, devastating effect on all of policing. And part of it is, is that the rest of them are uncomfortable about saying anything. And we can look to the George Floyd killing and seeing the two officers who were rookies and they had been on the job four days. And so the one sitting on uh, George's legs says, I don't think we should be doing this. Let's roll him over. And was silenced by Sheldon and said, no, we're going to just, continue on and so here you have a man saying morally ethically this is wrong we can't do this i've learned this differently and then you have uh i I believe he was an fto saying no we're going to do this and so this man completely takes away his morals and ethics and continues on with the killing of george floyd
1: that's that whole group think dynamic it sounds like when they're involved in that kind of a situation Um, right right. at least that's my independent analysis of it, or whatever you want to call it. I, I I, know you talk about the tipping point in your book. And I really like that mm-hmm. term because I really think that George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, when is there going to be the final t- tipping point to this? At what point Boy. is society finally going <laughs> to say enough is enough, right? And yeah. can you talk to our audience a little about when you say tipping point, what you mean and how it can influence this issue?
0: So when you see something so outrageous and you're thinking, oh, that's got to be the tipping point, we're going to change this now. And I, you know, when I wrote my book, that was in 2016, uh, I started to see the increase and actually felt the disturbance within the law enforcement community. Just as I was interviewing officers, there was just something they were uncomfortable. um, And I I really couldn't pinpoint it. I was interviewing them about something completely different. And then starting in 2013 and 14, we started to see these. Uh, this violence toward um, uh, marginalized communities, and and I was looking at it thinking, gosh, w- what is going on? And then I started applying social psychological concepts to it. So when those happen, like Trayvon Martin, and then you, I mean, you can go all the way back to Oscar Grant in California on the Fruitvale yeah. um, Bart station, and and start to look at at what's actually happening. I thought most of those would be the tipping point. But again, I think when we see these three individuals who have, um, who have died by, uh, by police means or somebody associated with that, it's so outrageous from beginning to end. I think this could be the tipping point. If people are motivated enough to say this is enough, I think this could be the tipping point. If not, it will go underground again, and then it will rear its ugly head one more time. And again, each time it's going to get more and more violent. And that's why I, I really do believe it's so important to, to get this done. Now we can't bury this. This is typical of our country It's just to bury this. And we can't. This is uh, this it's is too an... devastating for the health of everybody. So our other part two that what? I want to talk about it briefly is you have sure. people who are sick, tired, depressed and anxious. The people behind the badge are the same way. And then they're actually tasked with with meeting people of, of in crisis. And so you have sick people meeting sick people or people in crisis mm. meeting people in crisis. And what do you expect? There's just violence. So we need to make sure that we take care of police officers, too.
1: So Absolutely. There, there needs to be preventing the flashpoint, the de-escalation that you talk about in your book. Uh, right, right you know, mental health awareness of, of what they go through as well. And we are living in very uncertain times. So I can understand exactly your point on that. And I think it's important that our audience looks at that too, is, you know, I'm not here to, to villainize good police officers, but I am here to look at police brutality from a critical point of view. And hopefully, like you said, we can have a paradigm shift on this. And, you know, what I, it looks like to me is what we really need to do is deescalate everything. We, not only with the police itself, but to try to get everyone to the table We've got to have a, a dialogue with each other, a, a real dialogue, what we're seeing coming out of Buffalo with the police unions and, and the, the, the different tweet, tweets that you see on a daily basis trying to incite further negativity. I want to ask you, do you have any viewpoints regarding how we can de-escalate as a society based on your personal involvement as a, as a law enforcement officer and, and with your training and your knowledge and your experience with everything that you've done with this project and everything else?
0: You know, I think uh, some of the most powerful places that you can come from when you're looking at at dealing with something like this is from a point of education. And I don't necessarily mean uh, school and books. I just mean, you know, making sure that you're in an environment of learning. Another thing would be self-reflection. However you manage to do that, journaling, prayer, meditation, or whatever, as far as how am I reacting and functioning in this world and how is it affecting the person in front of me or the people around me. And then um, and then having the conversation where you're willing to say, geez, I don't know. Uh, I was interviewed on NPR the other day and there was a pretty controversial stance as far as just getting rid of police altogether. And my response was, okay, I'm not quite sure what we would do if somebody is actually being raped, actually suffering violence and there's a gun involved you can't send a social worker. You can't send a mental health worker. You have to send somebody who's armed, unfortunately. But I don't know the answer. And so when you say I don't know, then that opens the door for having that person who's made that suggestion say, "Okay, well, here's how I see it." And then maybe I have another opinion about, "Okay, well, what about this?" And then we begin to open the doors as far as how do we improve this together. So that's I think those are the the things that I would look at.
1: So okay, one of the Uh, You know, they defund the police. You hear that on TV now. And I've looked into it a little on my own. And and what I see when I look at that is I could see uh, resources being allocated for social work and things within the community to try to help the communities flourish. And they find from different, um, I guess, reports and research that if you can create better connections and relationships, like the city of Camden Police Department did that several years ago where they change the way that they're approaching things. Having officers live in the communities that they serve, for example. Creating that connection so that there's, when you have a crisis moment, a flashpoint, those officers will know who they're with and they understand the needs of the community and may not be so quickly to resort to a conflict model with violence instead. And maybe there could be more that could be done. Um, do Do you have any position regarding the reallocation of resources Maybe you can get, you know, the way we do infrastructure, maybe things could be done in our communities where we could actually allocate different cross spectrum professions to work together. So if you had that one example you brought up, you could have a police officer there, but you could also have a crisis manager involved over the phone or, you know, there might be a way that with technology we could do these things. Do you have an opinion on
2: that?
0: I do. I think that that's a very confusing term for, for folks about defunding police departments because it sounds like a blanket statement about, oh, okay, no more police. Now, in regards to Minneapolis, mm. there's a significant issue there. And so I'm I can't tell you that that the, this disbanding the police department is is a bad idea. I can't tell you that because there's such a, a, a history of racism and, and abuse within that culture. Something has to happen. So that may be a solution for that police department but but that's not a blanket solution for everyone because then you have to right. figure out well what do you do when you're responding to some kind of emergency as far as uh, defunding police what they are talking about is defunding those social problems that police ended up with now the interesting thing about that is that okay let's say you take away the funding for homelessness and you take away the funding for um Child uh, truancy issues, or you take away the funding for um, child abuse or for domestic violence. the interesting thing about that is that those problems came to police because there was a lack of responsibility from other agencies or a lack of the ability to handle the amount of calls that were coming in, and so they gave it to the police so interesting and then what happens? you get the money but but the training's really not. Spot on because now you 're asking a police officer to be a social worker or a child sure. advocate or uh, you know a crisis worker or something like that now, police are pretty talented, but when you do that, you need to make sure you 're following through with funding so if you 're going to take that away and give it back to the agencies, well goodness sake everybody's going to have to be responsible for what they 're doing in the world
1: <laughs> that 's an interesting point you raised the funding issue if you were to reallocate resources and if you if you don't have properly trained officers or you don't have proper mental health programs in place to help those officers deal and cope have coping mechanisms all those kind of things it's gonna it's, it's not gonna handle the situation it's gonna be a band-aid <laughs> like in your book you talk right. about you compare you compared standards for training and you said every every department I think there's like 18,000 police departments across the country it's like a patchwork every single department has their own training programs. And some of them, like, I think you compared California peace officer standards and training had zero training uh, hours for communication skills for its officers, while New York PD, the NYPD had four hours. Uh, Can you talk a little about that? Because I think that's important to bring up while we approach this issue.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I I had interviewed a a chief constable um, when I was doing my research in 2010. And I remember something he'd said to me And it stuck with me. It was part of the book. Uh, He said, you Americans have no idea how to police. And, you know, initially I was still a cop. And I was like, what? And then I realized, okay, wait a minute. You're the researcher in this. Let's just calm down. And what he said is, is you have all of these police agencies and you have all these different standards. We have done everything um, such as Comstat and uh, these other uh, broken windows theories and all that. We went back to asking people how they want to be policed. Now, that's not to say that the U.K. doesn't have their own issues within their own police services. But that is a question that's never been asked within our police agencies as far as I know, uh, maybe in some. And so you have 16,000 police agencies or or law enforcement agencies across the United States. You have all these different uh, states, and every one of them has a different culture and a different standard that officers must meet. Uh, in comparison, my sister is a haird- uh, hairdresser and I was a police officer. She went to she went back and got recertified every year to apply color and uh, make sure that she was cutting hair properly. I didn't have to. Once I graduated from the police academy, that's the only training that I needed to do in order to be a certified police officer. I carried a 45, and she carries a blow dryer. So, the, the, I mean, that's completely insane when you think about, OK, how are we training our officers and who's on those uh, police officer standards and training boards? Is it a police officer that's continuing the culture or is it somebody that's truly looking at making sure the standards are appropriate?
1: Incredible. A good point, too, when you're looking at it, The reach, like, even as a lawyer, I have to take continuing legal education credits every year per state that I'm in. Do officers not have that kind of thing where they have to take online courses and different topics and certify it to a centralized authority in their department?
0: You would have that through agencies, not necessarily the, the Peace Officer Standards and Training. So there's a there's a certificate that comes through when you graduate and and then you can get an advanced certificate. Uh, as you continue in your career, and then you can get a supervisory certificate. But there's no demand on you that says you must have, you know, you must be refreshed and whatever. Now, I think there are some agencies that do follow that, but that's agency by agency.
1: So, for example, communication training, I noticed that you cited that in your book. (laughs) That's not a uniform thing?
0: No. Oh, no. No. And what's so funny about that is that we'll stick a gun or a baton in somebody's hand and we'll Uh, tell them to go be professional, and then we don't tell them what that means. And, uh, you know, we find uh, that a lot of the, the really, really sharp deputies and police officers are the ones who have actually been dispatchers because they learned how to talk, or jailers. Wow. Because they've been with somebody and they've not had a tool in their hand, and so they've had to learn how to talk. Uh, a lot of my experiences came from being the only police officer on duty in the entire county at night and I'm not very big
1: and so you learn to talk so uh, don't you is <laughs> one of the most important aspects of I think this kind of position because your ability to communicate with someone who might be you know on drugs or somebody who's desperate and in a crisis moment the communication can help de escalate
2: And without
1: that, what are you doing? You're resorting to escalating it further where you have these altercations. And the next thing you know, someone's dead and it's usually not the officer. And I don't condone violence on anybody, but if we can get them to learn communication skills, they might not be so quick to take out their gun. Uh, Right. Think about the amount of fear
0: that is in the police culture and in the community. So there's a lot of fear in the police culture. There's fear that I'm doing something wrong. There's fear that I will get fired. There's fear that I will have to use my gun. There's fear that I won't get to use my gun. There's fear that um, I'm not going to make it home. Um, I'm not going to make enough money. There's all kinds of fear within the police culture. And if you don't have communication Mm -hmm. skills and you don't teach people how to communicate or what's happening to the brain, then the only thing left is is you resort to what's in your hand
1: it's like your base skill set and evolutionary purposes you go kind of the fight or flight and
2: mm-hmm. as
1: an officer yeah. you're not going to back down I, I know you talked about in, in your book the culture of not backing down um, yeah. yeah if an officer gets challenged they will likely think of it as an ego type of thing or out of fear and can you talk a little about that too cuz i think that's important to share with our audience how you you brought up the fact from the viewpoint of what an officer might go through with these competing demands that they're placed on repeatedly, probably with inadequate training and inadequate resources. And then you have biases, bias and prejudice. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that would be something as well that's important to kind of highlight in this issue. So I would,
0: I would really point to some of the militarization that's happened within our uh, police agencies as well, which is really disastrous. Now, I'm not saying we don't need special tools at certain times for certain things. But the blanket militarization or the blanket, we're going to give you any tool you want, is really detrimental because it sets up a mindset. Then you have military and uh, other police officers that have really, really pushed warrior training. And so you get a warrior mentality going into a police department, which means you continually move forward. There's no backing down. You take that hill. And well, the problem is, is that those people that you are, are out there uh, protecting become the enemy. And it does become an us versus them. So there's nothing mm. wrong with being able to, to get off the track. So somebody's coming at you instead of going forward in order to, to meet that challenge, that you step aside or that you, you take a, a, a safer stance. I'm not saying that you won't deal with the situation, but just that breath. Just that moment, where maybe you've stepped back or to the side, or or said a word and and uh, moved to a safer spot, could have brought the whole situation down. M- hopefully, put you in a safer spot, and maybe de-escalated by the fact that you're not pushing that encounter. Because we, you know, it's an ego-driven profession too. I mean, it just mm-hmm. is. You have a lot of power That's in fair. that in that position. And so you don't want to give up ground when, in fact, maybe you should. There's no reason that we can't say I'm sorry or back down just a bit and say, okay, wait a minute. Let's just take a different tact here. So,
1: Why not, right? It would make it would make the officers right. look human to the other side as well, to the people that might be in front of them. They could see that this person is just like me, and they have a job to do, but it's not us versus them. <laughs> Once you do that, right. that's when yeah. you have the breakdown that we're dealing with. Yeah, um, exactly. Michael Michael Dowd, you mentioned him, the 7-5, you never give up another mm-hmm. cop, and the mindset is you have yep. each other's back. And if you're a good cop, yeah. even if you see something that may not be right, you're not going to say anything. Can you talk a little about that yep. in reference to the context of what we're discussing here and why it's important to look at it that way as well, you know, consider that?
0: It, it, again, it's a very closed society, and I would say that, uh, you know, you're depending on each other in order to survive. and Uh, So that's part of the the deal, too. And so there's this uh, this brotherhood um, society that is created by that mentality, like you protect each other no matter what, because, you know, if you don't, then we won't protect you. And so there becomes a fear about uh, what one my safety. Then the second thing that happens is that strong social component of belonging. You know, you people work so hard to find something to belong to, and they will do almost anything in order to belong. And that would mean also giving up their morals and ethics and um, maybe doing something illegal. And so those that are in the culture that might want to take advantage of that unconsciously or consciously know how to do that and groom somebody, which is exactly what happened with Michael Dowd. You know, he actually gave the hundred dollar bill to his partner. And that's just an enticement. You know, now mm-hmm. I have something on you and you have something on me. And so then that brings us closer together. And so then I can be protected at all costs. And so um, it happens often. I've seen it happen. I have reported against it. And I certainly knew that there were times when I had said something that my safety was in jeopardy. And I was okay with that because the bottom line is that this is a, this is a very, very
1: special profession and we, we cannot abuse that. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, you know, training is such a pivotal aspect of how to approach this mental health, wellness, spirituality that we talk about, you know, meditation, yoga, <laughs> different things that you can do to kind of get relaxation incorporated into a daily routine or, you know, detachment from these stressful high high risk situations. Um, is any of that mindfulness training implemented for police officers at all across the country, based on your research?
0: So yeah, there are some uh, there are some folks that have actually, <clears throat> excuse me, brought in some mindfulness and some yoga and various forms of spiritual practice within uh, policing. There hasn't been a lot of research done quantitatively as far as the effects of that. I will tell you that with within the interviews that I've done, uh, I can tell you that that a hundred percent the themes that came across, and we've done probably maybe 200 officers between the UK and the United States, so not a large study, but certainly certainly demonstrates that there's something going on there when somebody has some spiritual basis, and I would include atheists with that too. There's a you just have to listen for the language to know what that uh, spiritualness is. So it may be the sacredness of the human form. And then that's their, that's what they consider larger than self. When they have that, when they're connected to that, they, they often are able to uh, work with the concept that that's a human being in front of me. And that is so important to protect and serve that human being. They have uh, better ways to meet the human destructiveness and suffering that we see in the culture and in the communities that we serve. So uh, they, and they really, they center themselves. So let's say they go offline and somebody struggles with alcohol. They're easier for them to get back on track because there's faith in something else. And in comparison, when I've seen officers that have talked about that they have lost their faith or lost their spirituality, Mm. uh, you do see the the distress and um, crisis within them as that happens. So I equated it when I usually uh, present, I equated it to a pond. And when you throw a rock into the pond, you see the ripples that that come out. And so within the the center, you know, you see or I should say that outer ring there would be spiritual. And so it's usually the the most subtle area where if you don't address the problem there, then it's going to move into the next ring, which could be mental or social or emotional. And you continue on in. The last realm that you hit is the physical, which is the hardest. And then that's where we see dis-ease or Mm -hmm. disturbances within the body. So it's very important to catch it on the front side and keep that officer whole and uh, and healthy.
2: Absolutely.
1: And I think that could actually help a lot in terms if you can give this kind of reform, I guess. When people say reform, people get very (laughs) afraid. But when you, when you say, okay, maybe it's not working the way it it, it is. Maybe we have to make some changes. We, well, we have to make changes. There's no doubt of that. Uh, how do we get the police culture on board to accepting accountability and looking at itself critically, evaluating things, and then implementing changes?
0: So that could be another tipping point. As officers who are doing their very best work in a police department start to see those others being held accountable, and then they start to feel comfortable in being able to come forward, and they see shifts in leadership, and they see shifts in the community where it's no longer acceptable to be this other way, then you could see the change within the culture and, and officers quickly coming on board. It wouldn't take I mean, it could be a a blue wave in that direction, too, but they haven't seen it yet. You know, you're still seeing a lot of police union uh, folks that are bucking the system. You're still seeing a lot of that. Let's just say the upper one percent that are pushing down on the culture and saying, keep quiet, keep, you know, keep still, don't say anything, keep secretive. So until that happens, you you won't get them. They may quietly be on board, but they, they won't demonstrate that they're on board. Uh, until they start to see that it's okay.
1: It's almost like it's safe to come out. Understandable. I'm looking at one of the things you mentioned uh, in terms of going back in time, 1960s. When I marched the other day, I, I'm not going to say, when I walked the other day, I felt like I was back in the 1960s in a protest. And one of the things that I, I found interesting when I was looking at your book was caking the idea and the concept from the civil rights movement of the 1960s and looking critically from a historical point of view, potentially at the integration, how most people resisted it and resented it on both sides. And there wasn't like education that properly helped people understand what we were trying to do. And eventually y- you still wind up with this marginaliz- mar- marginalized situation. You got racism, you still have inequality. I guess what I'd like to ask you in terms of What we've done with the experiment of integration and how we approached it, you know, 50 years ago, is there anything different that you think we can do now as we approach the situation from the lens of where we are and after looking at, you know, everything that's happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and many, many countless other souls?
0: So what do we need to do or what haven't we done very well with this? Is that what well, you're uh, asking?
1: Well, yeah, let me rephrase that question. My apologies. <laughs> uh, looking at it from a critical point of view, when we look at integration from the 1960s and the busing and everything that happened there. Uh, it obviously didn't go far enough or we wouldn't be where we are right now with the issues of of race and policing. And I guess what my question would be, what do you think we could do differently this time around to to get everyone to really buy into the changes that we're going to try to make in the future?
0: Uh, one, everyone recognize and state that we have a problem. And then two, to be willing to learn from somebody other than yourself about what's what it is like for that other individual. Uh, when we see somebody that doesn't ask any questions about, uh, and you know, and I have racist relatives in, in my background. Oh, my God. And so. When we don't ask questions and we just blanketly label somebody, you know, then we're isolating them. We're not honoring the somebody who's standing with us. And and I'm not saying make it uh, it's okay for you to be here. That's ridiculous. I'm saying that it, it's okay for all of us to be here. So you know, if you yeah. just say, "Oh, okay, it's all right. it's all right for you to be here," well, then that still devalues that other individual. And so I I do not agree with that. It's a matter of actually learning about each other. And finding out where the other person is standing to see how you can stand with them and stand um, for them in every situation. All of us doing that, too. I'm not just saying that it has to be, you know, one group or another. But but when you say I'm going to integrate and then you don't do any of the other work around it, then you have people who are devalued and they don't feel like they belong. And you have other people who say I'm fearful of you and you don't belong. And so that creates a huge problem, and that's the problem that's ha- that has continued generationally for, what, four centuries. And so until we are able to, to stand with one another and just even ask the question, how is this for you? How are you doing with this? What can I do to help? And then the major question for me is, how do you want to be policed?
1: That's a good point. And not, and not having lip service. To any changes that are implemented, right. actually having everybody to have an, a sense of so basically building relationships between different yeah. parts of the community, having everyone involved, and then also having those relationships c- created, so you don't have an us versus them concept. That's
0: Right? Can't that's an you interesting see point. yourself in that situation. You know, I've had uh, you know I've had students that talk about you know all the uh, literally say all the homeless need to be just killed, and 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 then say. <sighs> Are are you kidding me? Can you not imagine even a a veteran that can't find work or a mother who has a child? Maybe that mother was sexually assaulted and ended up having that child. Can you not put yourself in that situation? So that lack of empathy uh, when we when we look at somebody else is is really the part that's that's probably the most violent when we cannot see ourselves within the eyes of somebody else in their situation. Then we have so no pivotal. buy-in to trying to help.
1: How do you create empathy in people that don't have it? <laughs> That's going to be the greatest challenge of our society. I feel like I think leadership yeah, is important yeah. in establishing yeah. empathy, and without yeah. it, yeah. it's a free-for-all. Yep. Um, identified these issues, and I know it's going to be something that plays out for some time. Let's look at solutions. I know part of your book talks about the solutions, and I, I want to ask you, you mentioned how do you want to be policed, and you, you, you mentioned several different theories of that in your chapter, in your book, um, Chapter 7. I'm going to see if you could kind of share some of this with our audience and give them some different approaches.
0: So the, the agencies that I, that I policed were mostly white, and, um, and then I came to California and I started teaching. And really started to see some of the real serious disparities within the marginalized communities around, um, around the college. And I remember there was a major conflict with one of the Central Valley uh, Police Departments and the community college. And so I, I was watching this interaction when all of these shootings were going on. And I had the opportunity to speak with a, a young uh, black man who was so kind to, to sit down with me and, and let me interview him. And so we chatted for a while. He's absolutely brilliant. And uh, I asked him the question. I said, how do you want to be policed? And he stopped and looked at me and he said, nobody's ever asked me that question. And I said, I know we don't ask that question. And so his, his immediate statement was, I want to be policed from a distance. And so when, I, when he said that, I said, police from a distance, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because a, a police officer initially thinks, okay, that's, that doesn't work. I have to be there. I have to help everything. So then he went on to explain, teach me how to police my own neighborhood. He said, When we have a lot of cops in our neighborhood, that means that's scary. That means somebody's gonna get killed. If it's a white neighborhood, then that's safety. So everybody's okay when there's a lot of police there. So I wanna be police from a distance. I wanna know who you are. Where do you go to church? You know, what do you like to do? Maybe we can have a meal. And so when you hear Al Sharpton speak at George Floyd's memorial and he says, get your knee off our neck, you start to see those words ring through with this very authoritarian uh, hovering over the marginalized communities, not letting them breathe. Mm
2: -hmm. As soon
0: as they move, they attack. And so we need to back off. We need to, to maybe be absent from that. And, and teach them what they need to do in order to function in their own community. That's really what we should have been doing anyway, would be educating and, and gently guiding somebody back over on the between chaos and order.
1: Of course. And, you know, that's an interesting point you make, because without allowing the communities to run their own affairs, so to speak, instead of a top down, a top bottom approach and, you know, you have all these people show up and riot gear around your city or your, your community, your neighborhood. Get to know those people. Find out who the community leaders are. Build leadership. Build bridges. I know it's a a, a term that's so overused sometimes, but in order to really get to understand and help people, that's a good approach. Take away this oppressive environment. It doesn't need to be this Mm -hmm. way at all. Right. You know, I'll I'll give you my, my my small comparison of the two protests I went to last week. The one had all the police around us. It was it was. I felt like it was. It was difficult to be there and you had them, I I respect law enforcement, but being there and having them with their riot gear and I'm standing there with a thousand other people. The second one, when we were left alone and we got to do a a, a nice walk and all the cars passed and everyone honked, there wasn't anyone who didn't support this. It, It really, I think, helped that particular situation. So if you can keep police at a distance and only use when needed to have them engage, but have them engage in a caring way. You know, not this us versus them. I think that's so important. Um, And not that you have a problem with empathy,
0: but so not that you have a problem with empathy or lack of empathy. But when you look at the at feeling that discomfort with having uh, police officers in in riot gear, then you uh, then you begin to see, well, this is what it must feel like for somebody for uh, a a young black male to be in, in that crowd to some degree. And so that's the kind of experience that all of us need to have in order to understand where the other one's coming from.
1: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know what, you can teach empathy to people. It, it's not yep. that complicated. We are all human beings. <laughs> you can learn how to approach someone from a different point of view and a different perspective through education and, and the willingness to have an open mind. I think that's always a very important part of this is each individual mind has to look at it from the perspective of having a willingness make the changes. It's not going to change from a, a dictation from above. We, we've got to really look at it core-wise and, and look within ourselves. I think this is forcing us to look within ourselves as a society yeah. and the crisis involved in it. Um, I, hope I so. want to ask you this. Yeah, Absolutely. What what What's your viewpoint on the, I know there's a lot here, but uh, police review boards. I know that Derek Chauvin had so many complaints against him, and I know you brought up Um, other cases in your book where I think it was Jason Van Dyke had multiple uh, prior complaints against him for excessive force in Laquan McDonald's uh, situation. And I want to see if you could talk to us about police review boards, their role, internal review of, you know, conduct, alleged conduct violations and how that might be able to help change things or what needs to be done differently there. So
0: I think the the major part of reform has to be the the ability to uh, to penalize police officers that do wrong now, there is the protection under the color of law when you take a look at okay, they did as as good as they could in the situation and it ended poorly um, but it was legal you know that may be a different situation, but if somebody is is repeatedly using excessive force or repeatedly abusing the system, why in the world can we not get rid of somebody like that? That's just because there's a police union. Uh, In my mind, that's ridiculous. And I'll take on any police union. That's just wrong. (laughs) Uh, And then the other part of that, too, is that a lot of times in order to get rid of these people from the agency, then there'll be an agreement. Well, if you resign, we won't fire you. So then if they <laughs> resign, what happens is that they can go someplace else and be hired. And then the agency that they came from is, is legally only able to say, yes, they worked here. So that you have mm. these folks that will go to another agency and perpetuate the same kind of behavior in that community. So that becomes a problem as well. So we need to have some really strict um, guidelines as far as when somebody is fired you know, the Minneapolis police chief did a great thing when he fired those four. Even if mm-hmm. the, the younger police officers or the new police officers really didn't want to do that, they still were part of it. And so they still need to be fired. That should not be a union issue and have them go back. And then as far as a police review, who's doing the mm-hmm. review? Do you have any objectivity on that board? And if it's if it's all law enforcement, then that's not a healthy review board. You know, we have folks that review all kinds of things. I I would imagine as an attorney, you have people who review cases that are from outside of the uh, of the profession. You have people who review all kinds of things. And so why do we not do that with law enforcement?
1: You know, good point you raised. As an attorney, we have on the bar website for every state we're in, especially here in Florida, if you have any any kind of complaints against you that they found purpose to, it lines up part of your record online that anyone can look across and see. We should have visibility and greater accountability of that. And in terms of police as well, they should have something where if someone's had 22 offenses, well, that should probably be a basis upon which that person maybe should be a desk person or find another position somewhere else in life. You know, you don't need to be harassing people and causing all these problems. And I think greater, greater accountability starts from within. They need to to do that.
0: Yeah. Then the other part of that too, is that, you know, if you look at our correctional system and and how, how bad that's gotten. So when Mm. we look at that and we say, okay, do we really want to punish these people forever or is there any accountability? Can we, can we rehabilitate? So we have to look at that other side, too, and say, all right, so we're going to punish this guy forever if there was an excessive force violation where maybe it was a lack of training. And so we have to do, we have to do due diligence on the other side, too. Like, is this redeemable? We can't keep this person in purgatory. Or is this person committed something um, that's unredeemable and so they, may, they need to be removed? So those are, you know, sure. that's where an objective board would can take a look at and say, OK, you know, this may be some training. Nope, no
1: training out the door. So <laughs> civilians should be involved in that. Local leaders should be involved in those kind of things and be on those boards, I think, too, because then you're going to have the community involved in policing the police that have violations. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, we're running. We're actually running low on time. I want to ask. Um, for our audience, if you can share with us your information, if anyone wants to reach out to you and, and discuss this further, um, or if there's anything you'd like to share from your personal stuff or, you know, your university or anything, I'd love to have your contact information that you're comfortable with, or whatever, you know, your website, whatever it is, I'd like to make sure you have a chance to share that with our audience at this time.
0: Uh, certainly, I I certainly will, will help anyone that needs any help with this particular problem i'm i am available and, at, and of service uh, my probably the easiest email to reach me at is gingercharles at me that's me.com and then uh, my website is www.spiritualityandpolicing.com and uh, you can also email me on that one as well and i promise to get back to whoever
1: reaches out i can tell you that i would think you'd be in high demand right now because you have a perspective that really needs to be shared and heard in the law enforcement community i think the points you raise in police pursuit of the common good reforming and restoring the police community is really on point more than ever now then and i really i really support your your research project and everything that you've done to shed light on this critical issue. And I thank you for coming on the show because without your involvement in this dialogue, a lot of the pieces of the equation, I think fall on deaf ears. And so thank you so much for coming on and in short notice, by the way, I know I reached out to you earlier this week. I appreciate you making the time and I know you're on the West coast and it's early in the morning by your now. Thank you so much for coming on today. And oh, thank, thank you, you Jason. For, I really do appreciate the time. Yeah just sharing your ideas right now. I've gotten clarity on a lot of the issues. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking at these situations and they don't have information that's unbiased and it's through a sphere of one or the other. And I think you are taking a, a, a tremendous opportunity for us to look at it, not just from one point of view. And that's the starting point for us. The empathy, as you talk about. We need a collective empathy as a society. And I, I, I think you, it's true. I just, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, I really yeah. do think a lot of this is going to come together when we start doing what you've done already. So your your book is really on point. I highly recommend anyone from our audience that has an interest in wanting to know more about this, to definitely check out your book. I was able to get it through Amazon. So I, I just, it's important to me. And, and you know, thank you. <laughs> do you have, um? well, I appreciate any, it. Including, yeah, I'll just say, do you have anything in, 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 in some that you'd like to say before we conclude our interview that you'd like to share with our audience of where you see things headed or what you, any other points you want to raise. So I've in some ways painted
0: a dark picture. I do believe, I have a lot of hope. Uh, I love this profession of policing. I know that there are so many police officers that do uh, law enforcement officers that do such great work that we really don't hear too much about. I have hope we can get there. community uprising is actually going to create a better policing um culture and community that's what we need in order to do that so i do have hope i do believe that the world will come together and actually improve this and so uh whatever i can do in order to be of service in order to get us there
1: is is my mission in the world so <laughs> You know, when you just said that, I got goosebumps and you understand the spiritual connection with goosebumps when you are hearing something or you're, I, I believe you're accurate, 100%. The psychic in me is talking for a minute to tell you that I 100% <laughs> agree with you. And I think we are going to overcome the a lot of these hurdles. We're not, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect in a short amount of time, but I am saying I, I feel that. I, I strongly identify with how you just said that. and I 100% agree with you. And I can only pray every day that we get there sooner than later. Me too. Well, you me know, too. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you a light a light, a light, light question. What spirit animal would you be and why? What spirit animal? Yeah. Oof. If you were to identify with an animal that represents your spirituality, and I know I'm putting you on the spot asking you this, I just want to end with a lighter topic because of how, you know, we've kind of hit a lot of things in a short amount of time that were pretty heavy.
0: Oh, oh that's tough. I, I think I'm fluctuating between a seahawk and maybe that's because okay. that's the mascot of my, my, my college that I work at. But mostly because that hawk is up there, can fly completely still as he or she looks down and has a greater vision about what is below. And then uh, on the ground, a wolf and uh, the loyalty uh, to, that that wolf offers. And then hopefully if I meet Mr. Wright, I would marry only one time
1: as they mate
0: Just once in their life. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: And it'll be when. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. You are going to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. God bless you. I'll say that. I I always say owl. I always say owl for myself because I like birds. I have two parrots and owls are supposed to be wise and they have big eyes and they kind of go around and, and look at things. And I feel like that's my personality. So that's why I say spiritually. That's I always like to know if somebody can kind That's of think beautiful. of something like that, how they would approach it, yeah. how to approach it. You know, and, and one last thing I want to raise to you, with all the negativity that we are dealing with, there's so much positivity. I saw it when I was in the protests. I see it interacting with people. I love the fact that we're watching on TV when you see the Confederate flag going bye-bye and you see statues yeah. coming down and you see public statements made, which we would have never heard two weeks ago. That to me is so, uh, it's, it's showing changes within the NFL, within yeah. sports leagues and, and communities. I'm just so excited about that. I really want to see what the next chapter of our American experience is going to be in our global experience in light of these changes.
0: Yeah, so. I agree with you. I totally agree. So. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show and I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> Thank you. You take care.
1: Okay, you too. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Is where you're trying to bring people together and think of this as like, the table, you know, the table. Think of a nice long table at a restaurant, and you have all these competing voices. The most important part is bringing the people to the table to start. We need people to come together. I know bias and prejudice and discrimination are very visible, very ingrained in our system, and for too long, too many of us kind of were complacent. I mean, I was raised in the 70s and 80s. And so that gives you my age, I'm 44. Personally, I was raised in New Jersey and I always learned in school that the civil rights movement was this great thing that really put the American people in the next spot where we needed to be as part of that shared experience. And when I went down to DC and I lived there for a year, I I enjoyed going to the Lincoln Memorial and seeing all these statues representing the greatest and finest parts of our history. And with each of these killings, you know, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, George Floyd, all these people, you know they're like any of us, and their experiences really do need to reflect on changing the American experience going forward. We can't embrace the ideals that we consider so part of our culture and our society, the, you know the American dream and our constitution and our Bill of rights. I became a lawyer because I believe in that document and our, our posterity, and I believe in all this. But more importantly, I believe that when we do not have equality and you see it systemically happening over and over and over again, that our constitution allows us to peacefully protest and we should not be harassed. If there's those of us in our society that decide to go out during a pandemic, risking lives and welfare to make a point known to, to our government and our leaders and our local communities and our police districts, this is all important that is one of the reasons why I've decided recently to change the focus of my show. I've decided to change it and incorporate. We'll still have our episodes that we've had in the past and have people on and different authors talk about spiritual topics and subjects and different modalities of healing, like meditation and crystal healing and all those things that we've done before for the last two years. But I just would not feel right continuing that type of programming in this kind of an environment. It, it I I get caught up emotionally when I really think about how horrendous this stuff is, how we have to do now what 50 years ago didn't accomplish. Dr. Charles is a pivotal part of the equation to figuring out and resolving our issues. I thank her for having the, the moral courage and the authority to put this book out there and to be willing to come on a podcast to talk about these issues. And for anyone in my audience who disagrees with my approach and my support of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm going to say one of the two things to you. I believe in freedom of speech, and I've, t- I've been very tolerant of people having divergent viewpoints from my own. But I also know that the times we live in right now, if you completely disagree with my programming, I don't take offense to that. Just let us exist. Let us have our show. That's what freedom of speech is all about. And for those of you who are interested in these topics, I welcome you. To become engaged, if it means listening to this podcast for the first time and researching these issues yourself, or trying to learn more about these particular topics, life and death depend, and prosperity and the American experiment, all of that depends on this right now. In a global world where we are dealing with so much uncertainty, this is going to be one of the most important moments where we could either be on the right side of history and work to try to solve these issues and try to befriend each other and work together as a community so that we can make a difference. Or unfortunately, we can choose the other way. And I can tell you that the other side of this is ugly. It's not going to be the best American experience for a generation of our people. We need to make these changes now. And that includes speaking up, and letting people know that you disagree with their opinions. I know we're in election year right now. I have some of my best friends who are Trump supporters. I normally don't politicize things, but I have to say in the environment that we're in right now, and I've observed President Trump make his comments on Twitter and the way that he's handled things, I strongly, strongly oppose the president and his handling and mishandling of all these issues. And I believe that as a society, we need to come together. And so I thank you for, coming, for listening to this episode. Dr. Charles is an amazing person. I'm so glad that she came on. I, if you feel, let's say you're somewhere and you feel isolated and you don't feel like other people share your view and you feel helpless or you're concerned about things, you know, reach out to other people that share your viewpoint. Become involved. Be civically engaged. I am a spiritual person. Uh, I look at things from the perspective that we're only on this planet for a short amount of time. We are all energy, meaning when you die, your soul, your spirit, your energy source goes on to another place. There are so many people who come back and talk about that. You know, historically, our religion teaches that anyone who has a spiritual fiber in their body, you should be against racism. You should be against discrimination. And you should be against all these kind of ugly aspects of our society. It doesn't fit the mold. Bodies are like vehicles. They're like cars. So why would you judge one vehicle over another and think that that person is is somehow inferior to you? I can tell you right now, our maker does not agree with that. And our universe does not agree with that. So whatever background you're from, if you happen to have a belief that someone is not the same as you, that you're not equal to that person, you need to relearn. Because when you cross over to the other side, you're going to see just like everyone else that our energy is 99% of who we are. That our bodies are physically the vehicles that bring us around here, and that racism, bigotry, and discrimination are outdated and need to be relegated to the trash bin, the dustbin of history. A lot's been said. I've shared a lot. I I feel like this is necessary. And I, you know, we all have a responsibility on the right side of history. That's all I'm gonna tell you. If you don't protest, integrate you for that. If, if anything, just keep an open mind. And if your mind's not open, then open it. Time for these things to change. I hope each of you really look at these things from the prism of potential of hope, the potential of love, the potential of peace and understanding. We can get there as a country. It's just going to take one person at a time and one day at a time. But hopefully, progress is going to go a lot faster now than ever before. I thank everybody for tuning into this episode. I hope that each of you stay well and healthy. I hope your families and your communities are flourishing in these uh, tacking times that we've been going through. Dr. Charles is an amazing person. Thank you so much, Dr. Charles, for coming on the show. Thank you for your service to our communities. Thank you for exposing these issues the way that you have in such a great way. And thank you for sharing your viewpoints today. Until next time, thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, And know that the universe is always yours to explore.
0: At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park, or wherever. Start your cart with the Bakers app and save from wherever today. Bakers, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum, restrictions may apply. Subject to
1: availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for everyone.
2: Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, we got this
1: chair. Nice. This
2: my, dad. my name is prince daniels jr daniels
1: again
2: with a big hole. on this show we come to humanize athletes entertainers business executives we're going to see what makes them tick. tuesdays 10 a.m pacific time on spotify apple amazon and wherever you get your podcast we'll see you there peace and power electric out